pastor here, and I want to welcome elementary age kids to go down to the class. They're ahead of me, so they know what's going on. It's good. So we have been going through the shortest books in the New Testament this summer. This is why we call our sermon series Brief. And we've gone through 2 John and 3 John, and now we're going through Jude. Uh, partly the reason we're doing this, I think oftentimes these books are overlooked. We think, oh, this, the same stuff that's in those books is in these longer books, I'm sure. And, but actually, I think we're finding that there's some important truths in these books. There's a reason why these books are in, in the Scriptures. And uh, so hopefully you're pulling the Bibles out from under the chairs there or pulling it up on your phone uh, and turning to Jude's toward the back of the New Testament. And partly... What we'll be talking about is how the church is under attack. I don't know if you've noticed. The church is under attack. This is no news to most Christians. Those on the outside looking in at the church find our theology very peculiar, that we believe that God came in form of a man 2,000 years ago as a poor Jewish carpenter. Uh, he lived a perfect life. He then died a brutal death on the cross in our place so that our sins could be forgiven. He then uh, rose from the dead three days later. He then ascended to the right hand of the Father, and He's going to come back. And the outside looks in and says, oh, that's a really strange story you've got there. And then the practice of that story seems strange to many, especially when it comes to biblical sexuality and uh, how we are formed by the gospel in terms of uh, sex inside marriage and some of these ideas that in our culture is, is very peculiar, uh, if not downright offensive. But it's not only the world outside that is attacking the church. There, is attack, there are attacks within as well. There are those that are taking the essential truth claims of what we might call the gospel, the central message of the Christian faith, and they're deconstructing those, they're tweaking those, they're throwing parts of those out. And that usually comes in the form of overemphasizing holiness over and against grace, or overemphasizing grace over and against holiness, and there's lots of different iterations of, of those two. And it might cause us to think well, it's just not like the good old days, right? It's just not like the good old days, like first century church when everybody was on the same page and we, we were all unified as one church, and that's actually a very romanticized version of the good old days. In fact, the good old days were probably worse than they are now because the church was still trying to figure out which books were going to be in the New Testament. So we, we have the luxury of having that hammered out. And so we know which books are authorized, right? And so in that, uh, we have some, some comfort. But I think when we think about the first century church and we think about the attacks that they experience without and within, it can be a great deal of help to us as we figure out what to do with our own attacks as a church. And this is very much part of the theme of the book of Jude. Now, Jude calls himself the brother of James, and this James that he's speaking of is most likely 
not the James that was the disciple, but James who was the pastor of the church of Jerusalem, actually one of Jesus' brothers. And so when Jude says, I'm the brother of James, he's saying, I too am one of Jesus' biological brothers. And it's interesting that he, what he calls himself and what James calls himself as well, which we'll go into uh, later. Jude is a fighter, a contender, as it were. And he's not just fighting for fighting's sake. He's fighting for right belief and right practice. He does not mince words when it comes to confronting those who falsely represent belief and practice. And therefore, the purpose of this book, short that it may be, is to confront false teachers, both false belief and false practice. And he's encouraging the church that's receiving this this letter. We don't know what church that is, but he's encouraging them to fight for the faith, to contend for the faith. So, Jude, verse 1, he starts off with what I'm going to call lots of gospelese, and I'm using that in, in a positive sense. He says, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ, brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God, the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. So, notice what he says about himself. He says, I'm a servant of Jesus Christ. James, his brother, when he opens up his New Testament letter, he says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's saying there's something more to biological brother Jesus than just he's my biological brother Jesus. In fact, he's not even mentioning that because it's not important. What he wants us to know is that this Jesus that he grew up with is Jesus Christ. He probably didn't call Jesus Jesus Christ when he was growing up with Jesus. Now, Jesus, that name, was a very common name. A lot of people were named Jesus in the the first century. Uh, Lots of Jews were named Jesus. And it literally means Yahweh saves, right? So it it, it is meaningful, right? And it it speaks to the characteristic of of Savior uh, in regards to Jesus. But Christ is the word used for the Messiah, the Messianic King that the Jews are waiting for. And so he's letting them know, It's not just Jesus, my brother, but Jesus Christ, Jesus, the Messianic King that we're waiting for. And why does this matter? Well, it matters for a lot of reasons, but it matters for the people that are receiving this letter because they're getting a lot of benefits from Savior King Jesus. Uh, They're called by Savior King Jesus. So, Savior King is, is not just saving individuals, but He's saving individuals so He can call them into His kingdom. And these who are called into His kingdom are beloved. He says, you're beloved of the Father. So not only are you in this kingdom, but you're in this family. And now you have God as your Father because of what Savior King Jesus has done for you. It says that these who are called and beloved, they are kept it lets us know that this new identity that we have because of what Christ has done for us on the cross, it's not going to change. You are kept. You're protected. You're sustained. This identity that you now have in Christ, if you've placed your faith in Jesus, it's not going to be shaken. And what are you being kept for? You're being kept for Jesus. 
It's a Christ-centered understanding of the kingdom of God, which is all of the Bible. All of the Bible is Christ-centered. And these who are called and beloved and kept will be given mercy, he says. This is a compassionate withholding of deserved wrath. Right? This is how sinners like us can actually enter into a relationship where we're called and loved by God. It's because we've been given mercy because of what Christ has done on the cross. He says we'll be given peace, right? Peace with God, peace with ourselves, peace with others. The Jewish word shalom. He says we'll be given love, right? Love of, of God, love from God, love from us to God, love for others, and all this in abundance. He says that it is going to be multiplied over and over and over again. And so it's one of those intros that I think usually we gloss over. But every one of those intros, whether it's Paul or Jude, uh, all of these usually are lots of gospelese. Every word is somehow communicating what God has done and the benefits that we're receiving through that gospel. Now, you might be saying, well, how can I get in on that? I'd like to be called and kept and beloved. How do I get in on that? Well, through your belief in what Jude calls the faith, the faith, which is why Jude is so concerned about the faith. Because this is, this is the only way that someone could enter into this kind of relationship with God, called, beloved, kept, experiencing mercy, experiencing love and peace. And so Jude is writing to this church because they're dangerously getting close to getting that faith wrong. They're dangerously close to getting the truth claims that are the essential truth claims of the gospel. They're going to get it wrong. And so Jude even says, well, let's, let's read that third verse. Beloved, although I was eager to write to you about our common salvation... I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. This is basically the summary statement of of Jude. And so he says, I was going to write something more prolific of our common salvation. Evidently, he was going to write something that was a little little more thorough in its explanation of of the gospel. But then he he finds out that there's a danger that they might be jettisoning the the faith. And so he's like, I wrote this short letter Because I want to make sure that you contend for the faith. The Amplified Bible translates it this way. And what the Amplified Bible is, it tries to take more nuanced Greek words and expand the description of those. A lot of times, there's not like a one-for-one correlation with a Greek word and an English word uh, and, and a Hebrew word and English word. So the Amplified Bible translates it this way. Beloved, while I was making every effort to write you about our common salvation... I was compelled to write to you urgently, appealing that you fight strenuously for the defense of the faith, which was once for all handed down to the saints, the faith that is the sum of Christian belief that was given verbally to believers. And so he's asking them, I want you to fight for this. I want you to contend strenuously for the faith. So we're going to look at four, answer four questions. Uh, what exactly is it that the church is fighting for? What is this, this faith? Uh, how does the church fight? Right? We're like putting up our 
dukes or something? Like, what, what do you mean? Fight contend strenuously for the faith? Who or what is the church fighting against? Right? If we're fighting, we're fighting someone or something. Like, who is that? And why should we be fighting in the first place? Why does, why does it even matter? Right? So, what are we fighting for? How do we fight? Who are we fighting? And why should we be fighting in the first place? So, what should we be fighting for? So, he says in verse 3, to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. He's asking us to fight for the faith, right? And the understanding is that, that there, is, there are these essential truth claims that have been passed on from the apostles, right? We talked about this a couple of weeks ago, those of you who are here, that, that, that the apostles were, were given this authority by Jesus to deliver this truth about who Jesus is and what He did and what He's going to do. And so there's, there's this deposit. You, you hear the Apostle Paul talking this way in 2 Timothy when he's writing to the young pastor Timothy. He says, uh, follow the pattern of the sound words that you've heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. So you hear that similar language. It's like these, these sound words. I've given you this deposit, and, I, and I'm entrusting it to you. That, that has a, a strong connotation of something that is very important. It does not, should, should not be changed. It should be handed off to the next generation who then hands it off to the next generation and hands it off to the next generation. He says something similar to, to uh, Titus, also a young pastor, uh, who is being told, here's what uh, you should look for in the qualifications for an elder. He says, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So the same kind of idea that, that, that there's right doctrine, sound doctrine. Sometimes we call that orthodoxy, right? It's, it's like uh, straight doctrine, not crooked doctrine. And so you say, well, okay, then how do I know what the faith is? Because it sounds pretty important that I know this, right? And it is. So number one, read your Bible. The faith is in the Bible. It's in here. That's why this book's so important to us. That's why you're not just here to hear me give some inspirational talk. That I had some experiences this week, and I'm just going to share those experiences, and you'll feel really good inside, and you'll go, you know, have a nice week. That's, that's not what we're here for. We're here to talk about this book and what's in, the, in, the, in this book. Why? Because what's in this book is the faith. That's where we, we know that we know that we know that we know what is the faith, the essential truth claims. You also want to study sound doctrine. I talked about this a couple of weeks ago. Uh, the idea that there are summaries of the faith that are in Scripture that are biblically faithful and they're practically helpful. They're biblically faithful, and they're practically helpful. And sometimes you pick up your Bible, and you read the Bible, and you're like, that, I don't understand that. Or, that seems to be saying this, but I thought Christianity said this. And so it's, it's helpful for the Scripture and the sound doctrine to work together. Right? And so as you, as you uh, go to biblically faithful, practically helpful summaries, um, incredibly helpful to making sure that you're standing on the faith. Now, you might say, okay, well, where do I start with that? Well, the church through the ages has used creeds and catechisms. Creeds and catechisms. So, creeds are kind of PowerPoint presentations of the faith. 
They're, for the most part, very brief. And then catechisms are, are more thorough treatments of that same doctrine. Um, and so, the, most, the, the oldest uh, creed, the, the, the most well-known creed would be the Apostles' Creed. And it is probably from second century. So, the Apostles probably didn't write this creed, but those who are of the next generation who took the apostolic witness and they said, let's, let's make a summary statement. And this is used in many churches uh, today. It's still as relevant as it was in the second century. So we're going to say it, if you believe it. Okay? I'm going to ask you to stand. And if you believe these truth claims, you, please say them with me. If you don't, it's okay. You can not say them. Um, and we'll talk about that later. So let's do this. I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. Got to change it. I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, He rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. You may be seated. So that would be one example of, of sound doctrine. Again, it's been used in, in churches throughout uh, the centuries. The three creeds that are known as the ecumenical creeds, so these are creeds that are agreed upon by both Protestants and Catholics, would be the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, the Athanasian Creed. So that's a place to start with sound doctrine or creeds. There's also catechisms. And again, catechisms are a more thorough treatment of this kind of thing that we're talking about. And, and many different denominations and groups have uh, catechisms, and here's a, here's a few of probably the, the most well-known. The Westminster Catechism, very well-known by, by many. It's a Presbyterian Catechism. Uh, Luther's Catechisms from the Lutheran Church. There's a short and a long. Um, I grew up in a Lutheran church, so I had to study those and learn those uh, growing up. The Heidelberg Catechism, which is Reformed uh, Church, very helpful catechism. Uh, there's a Baptist Catechism from 1689 that's, that's pretty uh, well-known. New Hampshire Catechism, also Baptist, uh, 1833. And the thing, the thing about catechisms and um, any kind of sound doctrine is that it may be biblically faithful, but if it's from 1689, it's maybe not practically helpful. And, and so uh, while you, you know, could definitely benefit from picking up Westminster Catechism or picking up uh, the, the, the Baptist Catechism of 1689, uh, it might be more helpful to pick up some things that are more modernized in terms of their uh, vernacular. So uh, again, they're still biblically faithful. That has not changed. The faith has not changed, but our words change, right? And so updating how we communicate sound doctrine is always necessary. So here's a couple of more modern uh, kinds of versions of these kind of things. So the denomination that we're, we're affiliated with, the Southern Baptist Convention, has uh, what they call the Baptist faith in message. It's kind of a belief statement, and it's just very basic beliefs that would be helpful to you. You can find it online very easily. There's also something called the New City Catechism. This comes out of a, a, a Redeemer Church in New York City. Tim Keller uh, that is the pastor there. 
And uh, this is an incredibly helpful uh, catechism, I think, partly because the, the verbiage is modernized, but uh, it's just a really, really solid uh, catechism that you can use both with your family, with your kids, if you have kids, um, but also as individuals. And I'm, I'm using it right now, and it, they've got a really awesome app that uh, as, you, as you cruise through it, it asks you questions. And most catechisms work this way, where it asks a question, and then there's an answer. Right? And so it'll ask you a question about doctrine, and then there'll be like a couple, of, a couple of, of, of statements. And so as my devotional, for the last few uh, couple of months, I've been going through this catechism. And so you, you, you click through the app, it asks the question, you try to think about what the answer might be, you click it again, the answer comes up, and then there's a prayer, there's a scripture, and then there's a couple of articles, one from a dead person way, way, way long ago, and then one from a contemporary scholar. Uh, and it's been incredibly helpful, just, just kind of refreshing my memory uh, about sound doctrine. I brought a couple of these. Uh, there's some on the back table as well in the side entrance there. So I have a kid's version. Anybody have kids that would like this kid, kid's version of New City Catechism? Anybody? 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 Okay, here we go. Taylors will take it. Awesome. Oh, I'm sorry. Can you help me with that? Uh, what about adult version, which also has the kid version in it? Oh, look, Coolies will take it. Can you help me again? Thank you. All right. There's three more copies of both of those on that back table. And that back table, as you're walking out the side entrance, it has some, some free resources, uh, especially if you're trying to figure out the faith, trying to figure out what, what, what is the faith. We'll talk about that in a minute. Um, but th- that's what those resources are for. A, a final thing I'll share with you that I think is a good way to help you filter what is true gospel and what is false gospel is something uh, that the Reformers called the five solas. And uh, I've, I've actually preached through these a couple years ago. Uh, not that I'm expecting you to remember, um, but I want to walk you through these. And that, this is something I sat down with my daughter, Kayla, before she went to Scotland and I was like, let's, let's make sure you got the five solas down because this is going to help you as, as you try to discern what people are saying to you about the gospel, whether or not it is actually gospel. Because there's a lot of things that are said that are tagged with the gospel word, and they are not the gospel. And that's, that's what Jude's talking about. He's like, don't, 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 don't give up the faith. Don't, you need to contend for the faith. And so I think a lot of us are like, well, it's Christian-ish, and they seem like nice people, and they use words like Jesus and God, and so that must be the gospel. No. You, you've got to know your stuff. That's what Jude's saying, right? You've got to know the faith. And so these catechisms, these creeds, these are helpful, uh, and I think the five solas are helpful. So let me, let me work through these. So um, the, the, they're called the solas, which is Latin for only or alone. Right? So each of these has, a, has an alone attached to it. So the first one is Scripture alone, that, the, that, that we know what the gospel is because of Scripture. And does that mean other writings that can't be helpful? No, other writings can definitely be helpful. But anything else we're reading outside of Scripture, we're filtering it through the Scripture. That Scripture is, is our ultimate authority when it comes to truth. And so it's Scripture alone. Uh, the next one is grace alone. You are saved by grace alone. It is not a, a 50-50 deal that you make with God, where God's like, yeah, or, or even God will come 90%, and you'll do 10% of the work, and then we'll, we'll be saved. No, it's 100% God. It is by grace 
alone. It is a grace gift of salvation. Uh, the third one is faith alone. But the means by which you get that grace gift is faith. It is faith, which is a gift in and of itself. And so it's by grace alone, through faith alone, that we are, are saved. And that grace alone, faith alone, rests in Christ alone. Right? So it's by grace, through faith. And, and again, it, those, those words matter. If you say, I'm saved by faith, you're an unintentional heretic. You are not saved by faith. God saved you, not your faith. Okay, that's what grace alone means, by grace alone, through faith alone. So faith is now the instrument through which you receive the grace, and that faith is a gift in and of itself, and that faith rests in Christ alone. But Jesus purchased that grace it's not Christ plus something else. It's not Christ plus baptism, right? It's not Christ plus I got to do some good stuff. It's Christ alone. Your salvation rests in Christ alone. And the fifth one is to the glory of God alone. That the gospel is God-centered. You know, anyone's preaching a gospel and, and, and its highest end is people, they're getting it wrong, right? Now, does it benefit people? Absolutely. It's our greatest gift. It's the greatest good that can ever be given to us. But it is God-centered. It is for the glory of God alone. You'll even see that in Jude here in a minute. So, in summary, the gospel is based on Scripture alone. It is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. So, if you got that little grid, so that, so that would be an example of sound doctrine, right? That's not like word for word in the Bible somewhere, but, it, but it's some recaps, some biblically faithful summaries of things that are in Scripture. And so as you're reading Scripture, you can keep some of that in your mind. As you're hearing people talk about the gospel, you can, you can, you can filter, right? And, and you need those kinds of filters. All right, so that's what we're fighting for, the faith. How does the church fight? Um, I talked about this two weeks ago. I'm not going to go too far into it. You can, you can listen to that sermon uh, on SoundCloud. And what, but what I, would, what I did say, I talked about cure and I talked about prevention. So when there is someone inside the church who is trying to undermine the faith, and that's who we're talking about. That's who Jude is coming after. He's not coming after a brand new baby believer who like, hasn't figured it out yet and they're maybe saying things that are quite, not quite the faith. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about someone who understands what is being taught in the church as the faith, and they are seeking to undermine that. That's who he's talking about. And so we talked a couple weeks ago about the cure and prevention. So the cure is you call them out. If they don't repent, you throw them out. It's that important. Because if you get the faith wrong, you get everything wrong. This is why Jude is, is he, he's so upset and stops writing the long letter and writes a short letter. Because you get the faith wrong, you get everything else wrong. And so you call them out, and if they don't repent, you throw them out. Now, ounce of prevention, pound of cure, right? Like, like we want to do prevention so we don't have to do cure. And this is what I talked about a couple of weeks ago. So sound teaching in the church helps prevent this. This is partly my job. It's the job of the elders. 
to make sure that you're hearing sound teaching so that we don't end up uh, undermining the faith. Uh, establishing biblically qualified elders and leaders in the church. It's very important. Why? Because they're contending for the faith. They're the shepherds, the, the sheepdogs that are making sure that there's not someone who's undermining, purposely undermining the faith. Uh, and then, of course, establishing members in sound doctrine and in the Scriptures. Notice that Jude, that the book of Jude is written to a church. Right? It, it, it's written to a, a membership. And his expectation is that they are contending for the faith, that they know what the faith is enough to even know what he's talking about, and that they will contend for it, that they will fight for it. Number three, who is it that we're fighting against? Talked a little bit about that already, but listen to how he describes these people. Verse 4, he says, For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. So these are some pretty, pretty heavy words here. Jude is heavy, just in general, in case you're wondering. Um, got a lot of crazy stuff in it, so definitely come back next week. It'll, it'll really get crazy. Uh, certain people. Who are these certain people? Well, these people are nice people. These, these people have come in unnoticed. They're not like crazy cult leaders looking to scoop up a couple of people from the church. They're nice people. They're religious people. They pray. They read their Bibles. They volunteer. Right? Now, again, he's not saying be paranoid about every person in the church, but be aware that this does happen. People come into the church and they know what's being taught. They understand the faith that's being portrayed and they are seeking intentionally to undermine the faith. He says they're designated for condemnation. Yeah, I just went there. You're thinking, oh, he'll just probably gloss over that. No, I'm going to go there. That's unsettling for most of us, right? The Greek word there is prographo, written beforehand. This was written beforehand. And we, we have this, at least for us, it's a tension between sovereignty of God and free will of human beings. The script, there's no tension in the Scripture. It's just like, here's sovereignty, here's free will. Have at it, you know? Like, it's not, trying, it's not trying to explain it. But for us as moderns, we're like, oh, I don't like it when it talks about sovereignty. Now, free will stuff, we're cool with it. We're like, oh, yeah, love it. But what's interesting is why do we want us to be in control and not God? I don't get that. Because there's something to this verse that is comforting. That God is still sovereign and in control over even these difficult things that are happening inside the church. Jesus himself speaks like this. John 17, uh, he's talking about one of his disciples. He says, while I was with them, I kept them in your name. There's that kept word again. Which you have given me, I've guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Now he's talking about Judas. And he's saying, I've kept them all except for one. And that one is a son of destruction, as in his origination in some level. Like his dad is destruction. Uh, NIV translates 
this doomed to destruction. So it's kind of the idea that's coming out of this phrase of, of, of son of destruction. Jesus is saying this thing that Judas is doing, it was predicted. It was written beforehand. It was pro grafo. Now, Judas, did he still choose to betray Jesus? Yes, he did. Is he responsible for that behavior? Yes, he is. But there's also a sense in which God preordained that. And somehow, through that really, really horrible act, activity, God is bringing about his good plan. So it actually brings comfort to the gospel writer, or to, 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 to these events that the gospel writer is describing which are horrible, right? Jesus is being betrayed. He's being brutally beaten and tortured. He's being killed on a cross. But threaded in those gospel, and all the gospel writers do it, there's a sense that God is in control. He is sovereign over this, this activity. He has preordained. He has pro-grafo these things. So these are also a comfort in the book of Jude. Similar kind of situation. You got, you got this hard thing happening inside the church. I think that hurts worse than stuff outside the church. Outside the church, kind of expect that. There's going to be some things outside the church. There's going to be attacks on church doctrine, church practice. But it, it kind of surprises us when it's inside the church, and it's, it's super difficult to deal with as a leader. But there's comfort in this pro-grafo idea because he's saying, God knew this was going to happen. And you'll, you'll see later in Jude all these examples of God saying, this is going to happen, 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 really shouldn't be a surprise. And, oh, sorry. It's, it, what's interesting is, is, is now how he describes these false teachers. So what you might think he, he would go to is their theology, which their theology is, is bad. But he doesn't do that. He says this in, in uh, verse 4, ungodly people, describes them as ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. He describes them as ungodly people, not, not, not that they're getting the truth wrong, although they are. He talks about their practice. And so what he reveals there and what is in the Scriptures over and over and over is that if you get your belief wrong, you get your practice wrong. If you get your belief wrong, you get your practice wrong. And so he starts with practice as proof that they're getting their belief wrong. And so he calls them ungodly people. Now, ungodly usually refers to some kind of immoral behavior. And the idea is that they're not reflecting who God is. So they're ungodly. You're an image bearer of God. So you were created to reflect the person of God in, in, at some level. And when you're not doing that, you're ungodly. So when you're doing things that are against Scripture and against God's Word, you're being ungodly. And he says that they're perverting the grace of our God. So now he's talking about the gospel. He's saying they're twisting it. That's what per perversion means. They're twisting the grace of the gospel. So their, their practice is wrong. Why is their practice wrong? Because their belief is wrong. I shared this, uh, this slide last week, and you can kind of start with the behavior, and you can work backwards into false worship and eventually to false thinking, right? Futile thinking. That, that when we get our faith wrong, our truth claims wrong, it leads to wrong behavior. Now, 
why should we be fighting in the first place? Why, why, does, why does it matter? There's a lot of reasons why it matters. I, I mentioned one earlier in this sermon. Uh, if people don't get the truth claims right, they, they can't be saved. They can't be called and kept. Right? They, they can't enter into this relationship with God through Christ if they don't get the truth claims right. But that's not what Jude says at the end of this, this verse 4. He says, Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. His reason for why it's such an important thing to get, keep the faith correct is Jesus. It, it, he says that Jesus is Master, that He is Lord, that He is Christ, as in King. I mean, how many authoritative kinds of, of, of words could he use, right? Lord, he's God, right? Christ, he's king, master, right? He, he, he is the one who is in charge and Savior, Jesus. And he's saying that the reason that this is important is because Savior King Jesus says that it's, it's important and that this gospel that's being preached and people are believing upon is giving glory to Master, Lord, King Jesus. Again, the fifth sola, what is it? It's to the glory of God alone. And Jude shows that here. He could have said a lot of different things about the gospel and why it's important that we get it right. And here he says it's because of the glory of the Lord, Master, King Jesus. And, and this is what he sends us into battle with, the faith. Not swords, not fighter jets, not political parties, the faith. This is what we've been given. This is what we contend for. This is what we fight for. Because it's, it's through the belief in this faith that people are made right with God and gathered into a community of faith known as a church. And if we don't get the faith right, none of that other stuff can happen in an appropriate way. So a couple, couple, couple few ways to, to um, respond to this. Uh, one is you, you may not know what the faith is. You've come this morning, you're investigating it. I'm incredibly glad you're here. We want our church to be a place where folks can come in where they've, they've never been in church, they've never read the Bible, they've never been around Christian truth, and that you can come in and, and you can process through what that means and whether or not you believe in it. So if that's you, I'm glad you're here. And I would encourage you to do something to take a next step to investigate that truth. I mentioned those uh, resources on the back table there by the side entrance. There's Bibles there. There's what is the gospel book there. There's what, who is Jesus book. I mean, it's some good basic stuff. So grab a couple of those, read those. And even better, talk to somebody. I'm happy to talk about it. Um, others in the, in the room are, are certainly happy uh, to talk about the faith, what the faith is and what it means to believe in the faith. Uh, some of you, you've heard enough. You understand at least the essential truth claims that Christ died in your place for your sins and you're, you're being invited to receive that forgiveness from Him and to place your faith in Him. And if you're genuinely doing that, you will also have a desire to submit yourself to the Master, King, Lord, Jesus. Now, that's not what saves you, right? It's grace alone. It is grace alone. 
You submitting to the Lord Jesus does not save you, okay? Hear me say that. But you submitting to the Lord Jesus is what people do if they've truly been saved by grace alone. And so if you're here this morning and, and you're like, I'm there. I want to receive this salvation, this, this, this salvation that comes by grace and through faith, and I want to respond to that by making Jesus my Lord. And I want to encourage you to do that this morning. To either indicate on your card that you've done that, to come talk to me about it, let us know. But let somebody know. Like, I just crossed the line. I went over into faith with, with, in, in Jesus. And number three, for the rest of us, con- to contend for the faith. To contend for the faith. Um, that probably means taking a next step and growing in your understanding of the faith. You may have some of the essential truth claims down, but I know for myself, I need to be constantly renewing my mind and reminding myself of the faith. That's what you're here for today. You're being reminded of the faith. I would say that's not enough. You need to continue to build your understanding of the faith. And so I've I've tried to offer you the New City Catechism. I've offered you, uh, you you can find the the Baptist Faith and Message online. Uh, if you want to talk about, about more resources, happy to do that. I'll probably post something on uh, an article this week that just has these resources, and you can go back and you can look at those things. But it's more than just study, is it not? It's actually then contending for it. And in a loving but courageous way, saying no matter what, no matter the kind of cost I'm going to have to pay, whether it be socially or otherwise, I'm going, to, I'm going to stand on the faith. I'm going to contend for the faith. And honestly, one of the hardest places to do that sometimes is inside the church environment. Because you don't want to hurt feelings and you, you, don't, you don't want to have a hard conversation and, and that is not a healthy church. And so with, with great love and with great compassion but with a willingness to speak truth to each other, because we all need this, that we would contend for the faith. And I don't think it's going to get easier. I think it's going to get harder. It's going to get harder to contend for the faith. It was interesting. When we, we just got back from sabbatical in North Carolina. And, uh, you know, there's still a sense of sort of the culture is Christian-ish. Not, not all, certainly. But there is a sense in like going to church is like an okay thing to do. It's an acceptable thing to do. I know that's not true for many here. <laughs> it's a weird thing. It's a peculiar thing. And to believe the actual gospel is a very weird thing, right? And so it has a, 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 a cleansing effect, I think, on the church. I think that's good. But we still, we still have to remind ourselves that no matter what, we need to contend for the faith. One of the ways that we are reminded of that faith over and over and over again is we come to this table. This is probably one of the simplest tools for communicating sound doctrine, right? Is is this simple little meal with the bread and a cup that Jesus instituted with his disciples. He did not want them to forget the faith. He did not want them to move forward from the cross and say, yeah, 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 the whole cross thing. I mean, that was important back then, but now we're moving on. We're, we're, we're coming to a, a new level. He's like, no, no, church. I want you to go back to the faith over and over and over and over again. 
I think this is partly why he, does, he institutes this for us. And so Jesus took bread, he broke it. He gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you. Even in that, that little phrase, for you. He's communicating doctrine. He's saying, I'm not just dying to be a, an example of love for everyone. I'm, I'm dying for you. You're a sinner. And if I don't die for you, you will die in your sin. And so even, even in his, 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 his verbiage around the institution of the Lord's Supper, he's communicating the faith. And in the same way, he takes the cup. After he blesses the cup, he gives it to them saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for you. It's shed for you. The reason Jesus on the cross is because of you and because of me. We're sinners. We would die in our sin, not just in this life, but the life to come if Jesus didn't die in our place. And so he says, I want you to remember that. I want you to remember that my blood was poured out for you. As often as you drink this, do this in remembrance of me. We go back to the master, the Lord, the King, Jesus, again and again and again. And so one of the things we're doing here when we are taking the bread in the cup is we're professing that we believe in the faith. Not just an inspirational message, kind of a Jesus-ish kind of thing, but the faith, the essential truth claims that are the gospel. And so if, if you have believed in that faith, right, by grace through faith in Christ alone, you are welcome to the table to take the bread and to take the cup. We're going to take it a little bit differently. Um, we're going to take the bread and we're going to just dip it into uh, the common cup, so to speak, um, as a reminder that we're not just individuals in here, right? That we are actually part of a common faith. And so you'll, you'll just take the bread from the person that stands here and then you'll dip it in the cup and then you'll take it right away. You don't, I, I wouldn't walk around with it dripping, okay? So just, just dip it, take it, and, uh, and then you can go back to your chair and uh, you can pray, all right? So let's respond. God, thank you that the faith that was given to this church that Jude is writing to, the, the faith that was given to the Apostle Paul who then gave it to Timothy and Titus, the, the faith that's been passed on from generation to generation to generation to generation to generation, Lord, thank you that we here today have that faith and that we are trusting in that truth, Lord, that you have died for us. And so, Lord, as we take this bread and take this cup, may we remember that, God, may it encourage us, but also, Lord, may it, it embolden us to, with great love, but great courage, contend for the faith. And so, bless this time, this bread, this cup, and this time of worship. Lord, may you meet with us as we sing and take the communion. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.